those of you that don't know the Peace Corps, the Peace Corps sends volunteers to countries around the world for two years to work with host host countries on their most pressing development needs. This is the very last mile of development work, so we'll send a volunteer to a village in a country. It'll be a day drive and then a boat ride over a river and then a day hike on a camel or a donkey. And they'll be in a village with no water, no electricity and spotty cell service. And that's what we do. And um, we send volunteers to do that. We do that to advance really three goals. First one is to provide skills where they're needed. Mm -hmm. Second is to share America with the world. And third is really to bring the world back home. So when those volunteers return to the United States, they know something of the, the world outside the US. So that's what we do. As you can guess, our most pressing data need is really knowing what's going on out there. We've got 60 plus posts. When we're at full strength, we've got thousands of volunteers around the world, each doing their own project. And in the development space, there's a very high monitoring and evaluation burden. Trying to help people understand what's going on out there is really the big thing that we struggle with. All right, thanks, uh, Luke. Lieutenant Commander Beach, over to you. Good morning, everybody. All right, so the mouthful of P-E-O-I-W-S. Um, so the DOD, I think many of you are familiar with, but there are different echelons of command, right? You have Department of Energy, Department of the Defense, and that's kind of your top level um, echelons. And then they break down in, in the Department of Defense into the different services, and the services break down to get all the way down to the individual warfighters. So we kind of sit in the middle. Uh, the program executives generally are charged with following the secretaries, the chiefs of the service, as well as the, the four stars that are in charge of actually fighting the war and balancing these all together to create the systems that they need and to actually go procure, to do the, all the development, the full life cycle, to deliver something of value to the warfighter to enhance their ability to do their job. Uh, for us, Integrated Warfare Systems, we sit inside the Naval Sea Systems Command. I spe we specifically turn ships into warships. So imagine taking the amphibs and the carriers. You see the, the amphibs drop off the Marines. The carriers bring uh, the air wing, um, as well as the smaller, they call them the shooters, right? The, the faster, more agile, smaller ships that are there to help protect the bigger ships and to also bring the war to the enemy. And so sensors, weapons, we collect all the data, we, we bring the data in, we use data centers, uh, create interfaces with humans, and then enable the human and the machine to then send uh, whatever the, the delivery of choice is, whether it's kinetic or non-kinetic, meaning physical or electronic, to the enemy. So you can imagine what comes with that is a whole plethora of data problems. How much data, how do you pass it, what are the limitations, how do you keep it safe, how do you get it back to shore? We in the program office need to know what the right thing to do is and then be able to take business data and put it on top of that to look at the constraints and figure out what we should do, can do, and then balance those out against the needs of the administration, the operation, uh, and the actual warfighter. So we have a lot of challenges that we are working through. Excellent. Thanks for that. Captain Erickson, over to you. Hey, good morning, everybody. Captain Brian Erickson, Chief Data and Artificial Intelligence Officer for the United States Coast Guard. I uh, am in my 31st year in the Coast Guard. Uh, traditionally, I've been a, a helicopter uh, search and rescue pilot and then 
Just over the last two years, uh, landed this role as the uh, Coast Guard's first chief data officer. So we went about 231 years in our organization without a uh, chief data officer or any people kind of looking at the organization through a data lens. And over the last two years, we've been in a data transformation to become more data-driven and a more data-literate organization. And I'm, I'm kind of like the, the champion that's uh, le leading that charge. And I rely on a lot of partners in DOD, as well as my partners partners in DHS. I think that some of our uh, big challenges and, and things that I'm working on are uh, focused around culture, process, people, and technology. I'll get a chance to talk a little bit about those today. Those are kind of the four buckets where I see on a day-to-day -day basis. I'm filling those buckets up within the organization at uh, a different rate, so glad to be here. All right, and Beth, over to you. My name is Beth Puchek. I'm the Chief Data Officer for U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, which is part of the Department of Homeland Security. For those of you that are not familiar with what USCIS does, we adjudicate applications for immigration benefits. So be it applications to become a naturalized citizen or a legal permanent resident, which is getting a green card, or an employment visa, an H-1B or H-2A, adjudicating those benefit requests. So. USCIS is a data-driven organization. It always has been. We're still in the transition from a paper, data on paper, to digital data. So that's one of our primary challenges is how can we accelerate getting all of that paper data into a digital format so that we can start to accelerate those decisions. We have a large backlog of unadjudicated cases. So one of the things that I am excited to do is to help our agency become more data-driven to accelerate those decisions, to drive down that backlog, to get benefits in the hands of the applicants as quickly as possible. And I have, I've, USCIS has had a chief data officer for about four years now. Um, I've been in the job for a little over two. But one of the, I think, biggest successes for USCIS was starting off with developing a data strategy. It was that signal to the whole organization that data is important, let's get on this train together because actually being so data-driven, everyone has a lot of ideas on where to focus your time and energy and what to do, but the strategy really helped rally everyone around four central goals. All right, thanks everyone. Uh, Captain Erickson, I wanted to throw the first question to you here. I think the last ATARC function I saw you at, your title was the Chief Data Officer, and now you are the Chief Data and AI Officer. We're hearing about AI every day, it seems, but I would love to hear from you. What changed and what does this new title mean in terms of widening the aperture of your day-to-day -day expectations and your, your long-term goals? From the beginning, like I was telling you about this data transformation that the Coast Guard is under, Back in 2020, August of 2020, the vice commandant at the time, Admiral Charlie Ray, chartered a data readiness task force. And the um, efforts were to get after data, technology, figure out the, the way ahead for the organization to become a, a more data-driven. Um, and we, we had some senior leaders who recognized that uh, data was not just a, a tech function. I think that for the previous you know, 30 years that, that we were you know, dealing with um, you know, 
technology, you know, computers, et cetera. I think that we just looked at it as an IT function and that the data is just a, it's a, just a part of IT. And we recognized that, hey, that's not the case, that this is really a core business function. And so we started to, like, like Beth said, we started to lay out a data strategy, um, begin to um, put in place functional governance structure that would be necessary to start to look at our data to treat it more like a strategic asset and, and leverage our data as a strategic asset. While that was happening, you know, we were, we were learning from peer groups, Department of Defense, industry, best practices, and recognize that both data and analytics should, should sit together in the organization. Um, and we set up this office of data and analytics just uh, last September that uh, has three divisions, a data and integration division, or a data integration division, a data analytics division, and a data governance and strategy division. So right from the start, we knew that we wanted to keep analytics together. And so I was the chief of this office, or I am the chief of this office, and I'm also the chief data officer. As we looked at what functions we were performing within the office and as my role, we felt that the um, chief data and artificial intelligence officer was a was more appropriate for the entire organization to recognize what function it was that we were doing in the office. Also, I think that it's a signal to the organization that we are paying attention to this. We have a very young organization. Our workforce does not, you know, you don't hire a active duty Coast Guardsman by saying, hey, this is the, the type of role that we need and we need you at the mid-level when you come into the organization. You start out at 17 or, you know, 17 to 24, and you go to boot camp and then you kind of work your way up. And that's, it's kind of a, you know, a long-term military way. We're looking at uh, better ways perhaps to bring on talent at certain levels, but that creates a relatively young organization. And this young organization is interested in artificial intelligence and gaining the value from it. So we thought this was the right uh, choice. All right, and turning to your colleague elsewhere within DHS, Beth, the department-wide look on AI is growing in terms of interest, in terms of focus. You know, I think DHS has recently formed an AI task force. In terms of that, what that task force means for you and the focus over at USCIS, what are you trying to get your arms around and what's the, the ultimate focus for AI for you guys? Sure. Um, I think it's finding the right use cases for USCIS. A lot of those adjudicative decisions to grant immigration benefits, you know, they're, they're very important uh, decisions to make. So we don't take um, the automation or, you know, giving that to technology to create uh, very lightly. But there are parts of the organization that really benefit from AI and ML technologies, for example, in the customer service realm, when folks need to know what the status of their benefit processing is, they can call the customer service part of our organization and start through just like you know you you were to call any other customer service desk. You would start off with you know pressing one for to talk to a person, press two if you're interested in why. And those are great use cases. They can help us focus our resources to to the benefit processing. So I think for us, it's it's finding the right spot and growing from there. All right, Lieutenant Commander Beach, you know, of course, the whole focus for DOD at this point is getting the right data to the right people at the right time. And, you know, that challenge is multiplied when you talk about kind of the battlefield environment or that rugged edge that the data needs to get to. How ultimately do you pull that off? 
just like you would eat an elephant, I guess, one bite at a time, you have to add value with every step. And I think people overuse the term minimum viable product. But the, the idea that you focus on an outcome and you draw it all the way back to the data that you need and then you understand the system that you're trying to take the data and get an outcome from. It's both a human and a machine problem uh, and you have to work through it that way. A lot of times we like to approach um, as a technology problem. This IT will solve it. This IT is gonna do it for us and it never does because it's about humans being able to use the IT in a system that operates with more than one level of complexity. Uh, it gets even more complicated when you throw in things like edge, right? Edge uh, largely referring to anything like a cell phone or something that is out towards the end. Uh, and it's about, do you move data to the center, do something smart with it, and then move it back to the edge? Do you keep data at the edge, move the processing and the algorithm there? And it's a big balance. And so there's a lot of talk about a risk-based approach, but I really think it's a balance-based approach, right? Um, like you said, every decision's important. AI, AI doesn't know that. They don't, we don't weight things. AI makes a decision, right, that learning algorithms weight it based on human input, not on whether or not that specific decision is important. So every decision to it is like life-changing, um, quite literally, because that's how the algorithms work. So, to me, this is about how do you still focus on the humanity of it, that you have at the end of the day, your, your goal here is an outcome of protecting those that are at sea, protecting us, uh, be able to affect uh, swiftly and, and with the right amount of force uh, and impact. Uh, and, and, and it goes back to a lot of different factors, but for me, less is more. Sometimes the right solution is finding the right data, the right people, and, and identifying a clear chain and then coming up with a solution. Starting off with trusted and secure and then worrying about scalability. Okay, great. And Luke, you know, in terms of that worldwide footprint, you know, the 60 posts overseas, worldwide, internationally, again, that challenge of getting the right data to the right people at the right time, that's a challenge for anyone's mission, but of course that's pretty acute in terms of that global footprint. How do you make it happen? The big thing that we focus on is we really have, we key on what we call the operational spine of the data, what's really important for delivery of the volunteers to the places they need to be. We have a ton of different systems running. We have our own healthcare system that we provide for volunteers with all of the data headaches that come along with that. We have transport systems and all these different pieces, but the main focus that we have is making sure that we can get data about where volunteers are in the volunteer life cycle to all of the major decision makers. And if we can maintain that piece of information and that insight, we will have done our job. Uh, you know, in a resource-constrained environment, access-constrained environment, uh, sometimes that takes the form of CSVs printed out and handed to someone, um, but as long as we can get the information to that last mile, that's our main focus. Okay, and you know, of course, when we talk about the automation piece of things, getting that data to people, you know, the demand signal for that data is increasing, and the pace of getting that data to the right people is a really tall order to do. Beth, it occurs to me what you said a moment ago is that this is really a workforce multiplier. This is enabling the human operators to do more work, you know, tackle more of the claims that are coming in, more of the, the, the caseload that's coming in. How is that automation and having that human in the loop really essential to meeting that mission of 
So data is a key enabler, so is all of the automation that you could imagine. You can, and we do this right now, you can look at the data in a case, or the, you know, the system can look at the data of a case and help the adjudicator make the decision, prepare certain checks so that they don't have to swivel chair into you know, multiple different systems to the Department of State, to ICE, to CBP, to see where, you know, where this person may have been. They can prepare that for them so that it's pre-populated, the decision can be made that much faster. So one of, the, one of the challenges that I have that I would love to, I've been focusing on I think for a few years now and I'm starting to see kind of some glimmers of hope are more, uh, at more access to our partner's data. It becomes increasingly more important when we face these large humanitarian challenges you know, that we faced over the course of the past several years with the Ukraine, with evacuation from Afghanistan. Getting data to the right decision makers is critical. And when data that a USCIS adjudicator needs resides in a Department of State system, we need access to it much faster, much bigger, so that we can prepare these decisions en masse, so that they don't take hours of research. They can be, they can be popped in a matter of minutes or seconds. All right. Anyone else want to take that? Because that seems like such a common challenge, the breaking down of the data silos. What I will say <laughs> that we've um, been trying to do, again, in CIS, we're, we're very fortunate that a lot of our data is in the cloud already. So when our partners are able to also get in the cloud and technologies do enable cloud-to-cloud -cloud sharing, um, it becomes um, that much easier to gain bulk access and not bring it into our environment, but to look at it in bulk from their environment. So the sooner that um, you know, our partners can, can get all of their data in the cloud and start to invest in these cloud-to-cloud -cloud technologies, we're all much stronger for it. So that's what I've been you know, working very closely with my immigration partners to get to that point. Any other takers in the data silo? Question? I agree with Beth. Like, uh, technology is really helping, um, you know, get rid of data silos in our organization as well. And we're we are on a, a journey to the cloud as well. I, I uh, we have a one of my colleagues at uh, Coast Guard. You may have heard from John White. Commander John White is in charge of the data and cloud branch, uh, which is just a, a new branch again that was just stood up this year. And w this year we uh, are are moving um, a number of our on-prem services. Uh, to the cloud, um, both uh, I think AWS and Azure clouds. You know, we just over this last year um, moved to Microsoft 365. So you're starting to see some of the um, some some silos begin to start to break down by by technology alone. In the, in this particular case, I think um, the uh, you know there's there's also always this. Um, problem where the, the stewards that were put in place are uh, sometimes overprotective of their, you know, silos and, and they're, they're being good stewards for um, the government. And I think it's CDOs and CDAOs job to help eliminate some of those fears of, hey, the, the goal here isn't to keep it tight. It's the goal here is to, you know, maximize the, the sharing for the right people and technology can help us do that. It can help us um, ensure that you know identity management and zero trust and privacy can all be cared for um, in a in a secure environment. 
Uh, Lieutenant Commander Beach, uh, you know, I was, when I was talking with Beth a moment ago about the automation piece of things, I used the phrase human in the loop, and I think that is a DOD-originated term there. Um, in terms of that human in the loop and the kind of the concerns that CDOs have with automation, you know, where is that right balance of having the human in the process, and where should they be positioned so that the automation does what it's supposed to, but doesn't run haywire beyond what it's not supposed to. So I wanna make one point that'll tie in. So one of the things that is key in my mind is to back off the last 30 years of what we grew up knowing, which is applications are the immutable center. Applications bring capability is what's largely, capability is largely anchored to some kind of application or product delivery. And that's actually how we have a lot of our programs set up, where you don't deliver an integrated system, you deliver a product or a set of products. And that is actually what, per Title 10, the person who is given that warrant by Congress, they're the ones that get dragged to the carpet when it comes time. And the reason I wanna bring that up is because, right, once upon a time, the Earth was the center of the universe, and then we discovered that the sun was, right? And applications used to be the immutable center uh, and there was good reason in the 70s when it came about relational databases and how we started developing software uh, and the, the GUI came in and all of the things that happened from that. But what we didn't do was in digital transformation land is that in the 80s we started to discover you had to devolve from that specific center and that relational database and you had to start treating these layers of the tech stack as independent and start to, to abstract them. And so when it comes to human in the loop, I think to me, human in the loop is just have the human in the loop from the beginning of developing things, the system, and having constant feedback from not only the people who know the technology, but the people who are gonna use the technology and use the system, as well as the people who are, have to build and maintain and own the system. And so when I, when I try to bring this around full circle, uh, I think that humanity has to be the center of all of it. And uh, when I say that, it's, it sounds a little bit facetious, but the only thing you really own is data. In the cloud and all of these other things, you're really just borrowing other people's tech stack. You're paying to borrow it and have it managed in a certain way. So you own your data and you own your people. And if you don't clearly identify your people and segregate the importance and value of your data in a way that is understandable and can be conveyed to a agnostic tech stack that somebody else owns and protected, then you're in trouble. 